The reading today is from Titus chapter 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, And then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Titus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Thanks, Jonathan. Good morning, everyone. Um, Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) If I haven't met you before, my name's Jack. As Sandra said, I'm the associate pastor here. Uh, we're in our, our last week of Titus, and this morning we'll be, we'll be, we've read the whole chapter, but we're going to be honing in especially on those first uh, eight verses together this morning. Um, and as we do that, I've got a bit of a question to, uh, to kick us off, and that question is, have you ever had that kind of jolt awake feeling when you've been sleeping? You know, when you're, when you're lying there and suddenly you get that kind of sense of falling and you kind of jolt awake upright? Has that happened to anyone? Yeah, kind of most of us probably. Um, has it happened to anyone on public transport? <laughs> a few people? Okay. All right. Well, I was in a church service when I was a teenager, and it was about halfway through the sermon, and I was sitting in a really old and creaky wooden pew, and it was, it was a really nice and warm day, and I kind of just started drifting off in the middle of the sermon. Um, and I got that feeling that I was falling, and I kind of jolted awake, but instead of kind of, you know, going back, I was actually sitting upright. I kind of just went forward and smacked my head really loudly on the pew in front of me. So everyone in front of me knew what had happened as well. And everyone turned around and looked at me. I'm pretty sure the preacher knew exactly what had happened halfway through his sermon when everyone was looking at me. I kind of jolted awake. Well, this morning, Paul is calling for this kind of reaction from the church in Crete and from us too, the jolt awake. 
Uh, over the last two weeks, we've been looking at, uh, firstly, how the gospel is to shape our leaders in church. Secondly, how the gospel shapes our households and us as a church family too. And this morning, we're looking at how the gospel shapes the way that we're called to live in the world around us. Uh, we read at the end of Titus 2 in verses 11 to 14 last week that we've been saved by the grace of God and God alone. Now, this grace also teaches us to live for God, to say no to ungodliness while we await Jesus' return. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, and at the end there, eager to do what is good. See, those who follow Jesus have been transformed into a new people, a people who are eager to be good as they live in, the, uh, in response to the amazing grace of God. And in Titus chapter 3 today, we continue to reflect on what it means to be God's people living in response to this grace. And what this looks like this morning, as I've said, is how we live in the world around us. In a world that's, that's be- it's where it's become uh, increasingly easy to retreat from society, Paul says, wake up. The gospel doesn't call for our retreat from the world and from our society. It doesn't call for us to go into hibernation while we wait for Jesus to return. But the gospel drives us off of our couches, out the front door and into the world to live a life that will point those around us to Jesus. You should have an outline in front of you. There's four points on the outline. I'm actually going to scratch one of those off, the third point there. But the first point for this morning is Paul's reminder. And of course, I'll, I'll be listening as well for any heads that are smacking the chairs, so <laughs> careful. Hopefully I don't put you to sleep. But point one, Paul's reminder. Uh, Paul writes, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. And the first thing that jumps out of us, obviously, it's rulers and authorities and being subject to them and obeying them. What was life like in Crete and under Roman rule for the Christians who were there? What kind of things would have been in the background for Paul as he was writing these words? The first thing I think would have been that the rulers and authorities Paul was under were those who crucified criminals in a gruesome way by hanging them up on a cross. And Paul's Lord and Saviour, our Lord and Saviour, had been crucified like a criminal under the Roman rulers and authorities. Roman rulers and authorities, they also followed a multitude of different gods. And at different points in history, they persecuted Christians, putting many of our brothers and sisters of the past to death. Yet Paul writes to Titus and the Christians in Crete, be subject to rulers and authorities. He talks about this elsewhere in the Bible as well. Romans 13, for example, saying that God has placed rulers and authorities on earth that he will hold accountable to, um, to him for their actions. But that while we're here, under their authority, under their rule, we are to be subject to them. But like all things, sin or rejection of God corrupts. And rulers and authorities are no exception to this. But Paul is not naive, he knows this. Yet still, he says, be subject to rulers and authorities, be obedient. In the Bible, when it comes to the choice of obeying God or obeying a person, the Bible always holds up God as the only choice. We see that in books like Daniel, we see that in books like Revelation as well, even from Christians who are called to obedience to God, even to the point of death. We're called to live in obedience to God before anyone else. 
But the point here in Titus 3 is that even if we might disagree with our rulers and authorities and the decisions that are being made, we're still called to be subject to them, to live in obedience to their laws and what they say we're allowed to do and not allowed to do, even when that becomes hard for us to follow. But disobeying rulers and authorities we live under, that comes after thinking hard about what we should do and what it looks like to ultimately be obedient to God, not a decision to be made lightly. But there's a big question for us this morning hovering there in the background of what is the motivation for living this way, especially when it can be hard. This is a big question that we're going to come back to. But Paul also writes about what it looks like to live in the society around us too. Paul writes, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always to be gentle toward everyone. See, Paul is saying, firstly, those who follow Jesus should be on the lookout constantly to do good in the world around them. Remember chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus has made us into a new people who are eager to do good. We don't walk around with our eyes on the ground, we walk around looking up for the good that we can do. Good that we can do at work, at school, at uni, in the sport club, in the city, everywhere that we go. And Paul writes, don't slander anyone. That's something that things like social media and the news and advertising make pretty difficult today, but we're not to take part in that, not to take part in slander or mocking and misrepresenting people. We're to be peaceable and considerate, not prone to conflict and selfishness. I heard another sermon recently about being the ideal neighbour, that idea of um, you know being the considerate neighbour who sees the bin that's fallen over in the neighbour's driveway and goes and picks it up and takes it back inside and not being the person that just kind of sees it, turns around because it's a bit gross. Finally, Paul writes, we are always to be gentle toward everyone, to approach others and act toward them out of humility and not a sense of superiority, even in a disagreement. How do you respond to that person sitting on the ground in the city who is homeless? He looks up at you as you walk by and speaks to you. Do you try to hear them? Or do you pretend that you've heard nothing at all and just keep walking because they're beneath you? Be gentle toward everyone. Don't act out of superiority, thinking that you're better than anyone else. Paul writes to remind people to live this way, those first two verses. We'll dig back into this a bit later on. But in verse 3 then, Paul writes what it looks like to live the opposite way of the first two verses. But the way he says this is by making it apparent that the opposite way of this living, the living in verse, the first two verses... Well, this is actually what used to characterize us. This was us. This was our lives before God saved us. And from here, from verse 3 to verse 7, uh, we begin to see the motivation for how we are being called to live under authorities in society everywhere. And we're given a trustworthy template to hold to. That's point two in your outlines. A trustworthy template. See, in verse 3 to 7, we see a guiding principle for our motivation to live this way. And it's this. At our worst, God acted toward us out of mercy, love and grace. So this is how we act toward others. At our worst, God acted toward us out of his mercy, love and grace. So this is how we act toward others. In verse 3, we read what we once were at our worst. At one time, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. 
I'm not sure how you'd describe what you were like to someone else before you uh, became a follower of Jesus, but if ever there's a jolt awake for all of us, uh, this is it. It's kind of hard to walk up to someone else believing you're superior to them in any way when we read a verse like this one, isn't it? It's all-encompassing. Because these verses describe something that is universal to humanity. The life that is lived in rejection of God, meaning sin. At one point in time, we read in verse 3, we were cut off from God. Why? Because we chose to ignore Him. It's the definition for foolishness that we get in the Bible, ignoring God. We're told we were disobedient. I'm not going to do what God wants me to do. I know way better than Him. We were deceived and enslaved by passions and pleasures. We bought the lie that true life was found in the things God created and not in God Himself, being blown from one thing to another, like wealth, sex, power, security, believing that those things were our gods and were worthy of our devotion and worthy of our lives. In our relationships, we did not love our neighbor as we were meant to, not if it didn't mean receiving love in return, which is not real love, that's selfishness. Living in malice and envy, our relationships with the people around us characterized by living for ourselves before living for anyone else. It's the humbling reality for all of us that we're all included in this description in verse 3. How could we possibly expect God to act towards such a people as this? But to sit in judgment over us as our creator and give us what we deserve. His judgment and his rejection of us as we have rejected him. I'm not sure what image you have of God in your head this morning. Maybe you're here and the next thing you expect to read is, but when the wrath and judgment of an angry God appeared, it meted out his justice. But this is not what we read next. We've read what we were, what we are at our worst. People who are cut off from God because of our rejection of him. But how has God acted toward us in response? But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. As we heard in the kids' talk just before. Instead of choosing to reject us in return, he chose to save us. Instead of judging us, he chose to save us and make a way for us to come back to relationship with him. You know, we could spend an eternity trying to make it up to God, doing the right things, but that would never change the way we had acted toward him in the past. The damage has been done. But even though this is how we treated God and each other, we read, He saved us, not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of His mercy. After a day out in the sun, maybe getting muddy and being pretty dirty, you need that shower before you can do anything else, don't you? Before you can go out again. Think of Mike coming in with all that stuff hanging off of him. Well, there are no words to describe how much muck was hanging off of us because of sin before God chose to make us clean. But here we read that it's not the trickle of a shower that washes us clean. Instead, it's like being invited to stand in front of a fire hydrant. We read that God does the cleaning up of this mess, not us. We read, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. All of our sin, all of the muck that hangs off of us because of it, the burden of sin that was ours to carry has been washed away and dealt with. 
We have been made into new people by the Holy Spirit that now dwells in those who have put their faith in Jesus for this salvation. Who, when he died on the cross, took that sin, took that muck, took that grime onto his own shoulders. All of God's judgment and anger poured out onto Jesus instead of us who willingly took it on himself. What is grace? This is. God has withheld what we deserve, that's his mercy, and has given us what we don't deserve, that's his grace. I once went and stood under a waterfall in India with a friend of mine, like putting our faces up into it, having a bit of a wash, letting it you know, soak us to the core. Uh, we wandered up to the top of the waterfall afterwards, though, to have a bit of a look. And um, what we saw, I'll be honest, kind of gives me nightmares a little bit still today. See, right above where we'd been washing, just standing in the river, there was a cow just standing there being washed by someone. And there were many, many other people splashing about and washing themselves above that waterfall as well. So my friend and I had been standing underneath what can only really be described as a town-sized, river-sized bath. And we were getting all the overflow splashing onto our heads. It's pretty disgusting. It was a gross thing to realize was happening. What I'm getting at is that trying to deal with our sin any other way but through Jesus, it's the equivalent of standing under that waterfall and expecting it to actually clean us. It's completely useless. It's only through Jesus that our sins can truly be washed away. At our worst, God acted toward us out of his mercy, love and grace. And if this is what God wants for us, who did absolutely nothing to deserve it, well, it means it's something he doesn't just want for us, but he wants others to know this as well. Because if at our worst God acted toward us out of his mercy, love and grace, then this is how we act toward others so that they might know this for themselves. This good news of salvation through Jesus is something that actually wakes us up, that drives us out into the world to live the way God has shown us to live himself, to treat others the same way God has treated us, himself so that they might be pointed to the loving kindness and grace and mercy of God this is the guiding motivation for how we live in the world today driven forward by the grace of our God and Paul says in verse 8 this is a trustworthy saying meaning verses 3 to 7 meaning how God has acted toward us and he writes I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. What is profitable for everyone? It's the good news of Jesus. It's the grace of God. It's the motivation behind the good we are to do in the world. Why? So that others might know how desperately they need Jesus too. This is why Titus is to remind the Christians in Crete about how to live in the world because the grace of God says, wake up, and it drives us out the door. So back to our first two verses then. What does this look like? Point three, following that trustworthy template together. Well, firstly, how does the way we follow our rulers and our authorities show the grace of God to those around us and to them as well? Our society loves poking fun at anyone in any form of authority. Uh, Newspapers are full of cartoons, uh, depictions of our leaders uh, mocking them. 
headlines provide snap judgments on decisions they've made and conversation around leaders and authorities in any realm really will generally turn to the negative instead of the positive because they've done something we disagree with. If at work around lunch we've just been talking to a co-worker about, yeah, I was at church on the weekend, but then in the next breath you start slandering a politician or a parking inspector who gave you a parking ticket, making fun of them and mocking them, what does that say about what you think of God? It misrepresents who he is and his love for that person. And it shows that we are leaning back into slander, that we're not peaceable and considerate but are leaning back into our previous way of life before Jesus saved us. If you disagree with our rulers and authorities over different rules and regulations, well, in conversations about this and in the way you choose to disagree and voice that disagreement, do you show that you are peaceable and considerate? Are you gentle even though you are firm in what you're saying? Do you show that you seek to be subject to our rulers and authorities even though you disagree and want to see change? Or are your actions, do they divide? Are they violent, slanderous because you're misrepresenting someone else's view on these things? Do your actions in this reveal the grace of God who you claim to follow? This goes for those who are disagreeing with each other around these laws as well. How does the way we take part in these conversations reflect on who God is and on his grace? Do you act in a gentle manner toward people in this regard with a stance of humility and not superiority even though you think they're wrong? What about following our rulers and authorities with our tax returns? If I asked you to come up on stage and show us your tax return to justify every added claim you've made, what would we see? How would you feel about coming up and doing that? Or if your friend here at church asked to see your tax return and what you'd claimed, what would they see? How does that make you feel if someone came up to you today and asked that? Have you been honest in what you've been claiming on tax? Or have you been abusing the system that our authorities have put in place and been disobeying and lying to them? How does that kind of thing reflect on God? So I think it would show a reflection of turning back to the passions and pleasures of this world that God saved us from being enslaved to. It would show anyone who saw that tax return that you reckon money is a better pursuit than God. So probably a better question to ask is how does it feel knowing that God sees this already? How does the way you respond to what our rulers and authorities show the grace of God in your life as you seek to act toward others? Now, what does it look like to do all this uh, being devoted to good works and to live this, this way in the world, in, um, in work or at school or in a sport club that, you're, uh, that you or your child are a part of, uh, being devoted to good works as you're walking through the city or, or even when you're driving? We are to be ready to do whatever is good, I was sitting behind a car at the lights just a few nights ago and I was thinking about Titus 3 and then the light in front of me went green to turn right. The car, two cars in front moved up and they went through the light but the car directly in front of me, it just, it just didn't move. Now I just read Titus 3, be peaceable and considerate but I think the person in that Toyota when they looked in the rear vision mirror, they probably didn't see someone who was peaceful and considerate. It's hard to think someone is when they're shaking their head aggressively at you and frowning with their overly large eyebrows. (laughs) But if the person in that Toyota who works for that pool company, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry. (laughs) I really failed there. Quite genuinely, I failed there. 
it's not a walk in the park living this way. Because we're still drawn to the life that God has saved us from. This is why we need to turn to God's grace time and time again in repentance, asking for his forgiveness when we do get this wrong. But we are called to live this way. Called to good living and good deeds everywhere we are. So at work, do the coffee run in the busy time of year and then stop for a conversation when appropriate to just ask how someone's going and to care for them. Show the love and kindness that God has shown to you even when you're in a busy time of year. When you know someone uh, is moving house at work, just say, hey, I'm coming over, I'm going to help you out. When you know someone's just gone through something hard, send flowers and follow it up with a phone call and an invite to grab a coffee so you can see how they're going. When everyone is complaining about that person around the printer who just can't do their job properly, don't join in the mocking and the laughter. Refuse to be lured into lording it over someone because they can't keep up with the rest of the pack. Stand out in this way that others might see the grace, love and kindness of God in your life so they might listen when you speak to them about him. Here's the question. What are you going to do differently this week in any sphere of life that you're in, in your context, that enables you to reflect the grace of God in your life? Actually commit right now to doing that coffee run. Commit right now to inviting that co-worker to grab lunch so you can see how they're going because they're going through something hard. Commit right now to asking if that person needs help instead of mocking them behind their back. Is that something you're up for? Because Paul tells us it's not something we should just sit back and think about doing and keep keep thinking about doing. The gospel drives us off of the couch, out the door, to show God's love in your workplace, at school, in your household, with your family, with your friends, in any context you're in. So if I ask you next week, have you done this? Have you done what you've committed to this morning? What will you say? In the sport club, say, I'd actually love to get involved in helping with the barbecue fundraiser. Uh, Get to know the other parents in that club that your child is in. When the other parents go home, help clean up after dinner or the practice or the game. When everyone else is walking off to go to the pub, go along, but show that self-control we talked about last week and offer to be the designated driver if they need one. When someone in a game shoves you for no reason, don't just shove them back. And when the ref makes a horrible call, don't join in with mocking them. But stand out, because the grace of God stands out. What are you going to do differently in the sport club this week to show the grace and love that God has shown you? What will you commit to doing this week, right now? What about more broadly in society? How can you be involved in doing good deeds so that you might reflect to others the grace and love of our God? My community group talked about helping out with serving meals to the homeless next year. So actually come up and ask me or ask anyone in my group, have you guys actually followed through with this or is it all just words? Are you just thinking about it or are you going to do it? What might it look like for your community group or your group of friends here at church to do good in our community and in our city? What can you commit to this week to doing good so that others might have the opportunity to know the love and grace of our God? The more we step out of our houses and into the world, driven by God's grace, the more opportunity people will have to come to know him and to respond to their desperate need for him 
just emerging from the dark every once in a while with an invitation and retreating again, well, it's not the same as living side by side with someone and showing them in your life as well as in your words the grace of God's and the invitation to come to him for life. My mum was on a bus on the way home from Melbourne years ago. This is before my brother or I were born. She sat next to someone who'd come over from China called Poi Yi, who was travelling around Australia. My mum started talking to this person, asking uh, who they were, what they were doing, what they were looking forward to, and it became pretty apparent that they hadn't found a place to stay while they were in Adelaide. So mum and dad spoke together and they agreed to invite Poi over to stay with them while she was in Adelaide. She stayed with them for a week. Mum and dad made her dinner, helped her get around Adelaide to see the sights. They stayed up with her talking and getting to know her. And when the opportunity to share the gospel came around one day, mum took it. And they talked, they talked and talked. And at one point, mum asked her if she might like to become a Christian. It turns out that Poyi's brother had become a Christian a while before this, while he was living in New Zealand, where he was at this time. He'd been calling her and writing to her and telling her that she needs to get to know this Jesus guy. So Poyi said to my mum that day that yes, she wanted to put her trust in Jesus to be saved from her sin. So that night mum prayed with her. Mum prayed with someone as God brought them to life before her very eyes as they trusted in Jesus for the first time. This is what we're on about. The people need to know the love and grace of our God. So let's live lives seeking out every good work that we can do for people who don't know him so that they might too have the opportunity to go from death to life through Jesus as they come to know the amazing grace of our God as we share him with them. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that you have shown to us in your Son, Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin and the life that we have in his name. Father, please help us to live in response to this grace every day of our lives, seeking to bring glory to you. Help us make the most of these opportunities to do good works, so that others might see the grace and loving kindness that you have shown us in our lives. Father, help us to be united as we step out and do this into the world. Help us be driven by your grace. Grow in our hearts a great desire to see people who don't know you come to life in your Son's name. Amen.